Section three of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume One, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter one, verse fourteen The Reality of Christ's Incarnation. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter one, verse fourteen. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The passage of Scripture now before us is very short, if we measure it by words, but it is very long, if we measure it by the nature of its contents. The substance of it is so immensely important that we shall do well to give it separate and distinct consideration. This single verse contains more than enough matter for a whole exposition. The main truth which this verse teaches is the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ's incarnation, or being made man. St. John tells us that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The plain meaning of these words is that our divine Saviour really took human nature upon him in order to save sinners. He really became a man like ourselves in all things, sin only excepted. Like ourselves he was born of a woman, though born in a miraculous manner. Like ourselves he grew from infancy to boyhood, and from boyhood to man's estate, both in wisdom and in stature. Luke chapter 2 verse 52. Like ourselves, he hungered, thirsted, ate, drank, slept, was wearied, felt pain, wept, rejoiced, marveled, and was moved to anger and compassion. Having become flesh and taken a body, he prayed, read the scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted his human will to the will of God the Father. And finally, in the same body, he really suffered and shed his blood really died, was really buried, really rose again, and really ascended up into heaven, and yet all this time he was God as well as man. This union of two natures in Christ's one person is doubtless one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian religion. It needs to be carefully stated. It is just one of those great truths which are not meant to be curiously pried into, but to be reverently believed. Nowhere, perhaps, shall we find a more wise and judicious statement than in the second article of the church of england the son which is the word of the father begotten from everlasting of the father the very and eternal god and of one substance with the father took man's nature in the womb of the blessed virgin of her substance so that the two whole and perfect natures that is to say the godhead and the manhood were joined together in one person never to be divided whereof is one Christ, very God and very man. This is a most valuable declaration. This is sound speech which cannot be condemned. But while we do not pretend to explain the union of two natures in our Lord Jesus Christ's person, we must not hesitate to fence the subject with well-defined cautions. While we state most carefully what we do believe, we must not shrink from declaring boldly what we do not believe. We must never forget that though our Lord was God and man at the same time, the divine and human natures in him were never confounded. One nature did not swallow up the other. The two natures remained perfect and distinct. The divinity of Christ was never for a moment laid aside, although veiled. The manhood of Christ, during his lifetime, was never for a moment unlike our own, though by union with the Godhead, greatly dignified. Though perfect God, Christ has always been perfect man from the first moment of his incarnation. 
he that is gone into heaven and is sitting at the father's right hand to intercede for sinners is man as well as god though perfect man christ never ceased to be perfect god he that suffered for sin on the cross and was made sin for us was god manifest in the flesh the blood with which the church was purchased is called the blood of god acts chapter twenty verse twenty eight though he became flesh in the fullest sense when he was born of the virgin mary he never at any period ceased to be the eternal word to say that he constantly manifested his divine nature during his earthly ministry would of course be contrary to plain facts to attempt to explain why his godhead was sometimes veiled and at other times unveiled while he was on earth would be venturing on ground which we had better leave alone but to say that at any instant of his earthly ministry he was not fully and entirely god is nothing less than heresy the cautions just given may seem at first sight needless wearisome and hair-splitting it is precisely the neglect of such cautions which ruins many souls this constant undivided union of two perfect natures in christ's person is exactly that which gives infinite value to his mediation and qualifies him to be the very mediator that sinners need our mediator is one who can sympathize with us because he is very man and yet at the same time he is one who can deal with the father for us on equal terms because he is very god it is the same union which gives infinite value to his righteousness when imputed to believers it is the righteousness of one who is god as well as man it is the same union which gives infinite value to the atoning blood which he shed for sinners on the cross it is the blood of one who was god as well as man it is the same union which gives infinite value to his resurrection when he rose again as the head of the body of believers he rose not as a mere man but as god let these things sink deeply into our hearts the second adam is far greater than the first adam was the first adam was only man and so he fell the second adam was god as well as man and so he completely conquered let us leave the subject with feelings of deep gratitude and thankfulness it is full of abounding consolation for all who know christ by faith and believe on him did the word become flesh then he is one who can be touched with the feeling of his people's infirmities because he has suffered himself being tempted he is almighty because he is god yet he can feel with us because he is man did the word become flesh then he can supply us with a perfect pattern and example for our daily life had he walked among us as an angel or a spirit we could never have copied him but having dwelt among us as a man we know that the true standard of holiness is to walk even as he walked first john chapter two verse six he is a perfect pattern because he is god but he is also a pattern exactly suited to our wants because he is man finally did the word become flesh then let us see in our mortal bodies a real true dignity and not defile them by sin vile and weak as our body may seem it is a body which the eternal son of god was not ashamed to take upon himself and to take up to heaven that simple fact is a pledge that he will raise our bodies at the last day and glorify them together with his own notes john chapter one verse fourteen and the word was made flesh this sentence means that the eternal word of god the second person in the trinity became a man like one of ourselves in all things sin only excepted 
this he accomplished by being born of the virgin mary after a miraculous manner through the operation of the holy ghost and the end for which he became flesh was that he might live and die for sinners the expression the word shows clearly that the word who was with god and was god must be a person it could not reasonably be said of any one but a person that he became flesh and dwelt among us whether st john could have found any other name for the second person of the trinity equally proper we need not trouble ourselves to inquire it certainly would not have been accurately correct to say that jesus was made flesh because the name jesus was not given to our lord till after his incarnation nor yet would it have been correct to say in the beginning was christ because the name christ belongs to the times after the fall of man this is the last time that john uses this expression the word about christ in his gospel from the time of his incarnation he generally speaks of him as jesus or the lord was made this expression might perhaps have been better translated became at any rate we must carefully remember that it does not signify was created the anathasian creed says truly the son is of the father alone neither made nor created but begotten flesh the use of this word instead of man ought not to be overlooked it is purposefully used in order to show us that when our lord became incarnate he took upon him nothing less than our whole nature consisting of a true body and a reasonable soul as aerosmith says that which was not taken could not be healed if christ had not taken the whole man he could not have saved the soul it also implies that our lord took upon him a body liable to those weaknesses fatigues and pains which are inseparable from the idea of flesh he did not become a man like adam before the fall with a nature free from all infirmity he became a man like any one of adam's children with a nature liable to everything that fallen humanity is liable to except sin he was made flesh and all flesh is grass finally it teaches that our lord did not assume the human nature of any one family or class or people but that nature which is common to all adam's children whether jews or gentiles he came to be a saviour for all flesh and so was made flesh the subject of this sentence is a deeply mysterious one but one about which it is most important to have clear views next to the doctrine of the trinity there is no doctrine on which fallen man has built so many deadly heresies as the incarnation of christ there is unquestionably much about this union of two natures in one person which we cannot explain and must be content to believe there is much that we cannot understand be it remembered in the union of body and soul in our own persons but there are some points in the subject of christ's incarnation which we must hold fast and never let go a in the first place let us carefully remember that when the word became flesh he became so by the union of two perfect and distinct natures in one person the manner of this union we cannot explain but the fact we must firmly believe christ says the anathanasian creed is god and man god of the substance of the father begotten before the world and man of the substance of his mother born in the world perfect god and perfect man who although he be god and man yet he is not two but one christ one not by conversion of the godhead into flesh but by taking of the manhood into god these words are very important the word was not made flesh by changing one nature into another or by laying aside one nature and taking up another in all our thoughts about christ let us take care that we do not divide his person and that we maintain steadily 
that he has two distinct and perfect natures the old latin line on the subject quoted by gomarus is worth remembering it represents the word made flesh as saying i am what i was that is god i was not what i am that is man i am now called both that is both god and man b secondly when the word became flesh he did not cease for a moment to be god no doubt he was pleased to veil his divinity and hide his power and more especially so at some seasons he emptied himself of external marks of glory and was called the carpenter but he never laid his divinity aside god cannot cease to be god it was as god man that he lived suffered died and rose again it is written that god has purchased the church with his own blood it was the blood of one who was not man only but god c thirdly when the word became flesh he was made a man in the truth of our nature like unto us in all things and from that hour he never ceased to be man his humanity was not a humanity different from our own and though now glorified is our humanity still it was perfect man no less than perfect god who resisted temptation fulfilled the law perfectly endured the contradiction of sinners spent nights in prayer kept his will in subjection to the father's will suffered died and at length ascended up to heaven with flesh bones and all things appertaining to man's nature it is written that in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren moreover he did not lay aside his humanity when he left the world he that ascended up on the mount of olives and is sitting at the right hand of god to intercede for believers is one who is still man as well as god our high priest in heaven is not god only but man christ's humanity as well as divinity are both in heaven one in our nature our elder brother has gone as our forerunner to prepare a place for us d lastly when the word became flesh he did not take on him peccable flesh it is written that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh romans chapter eight verse three but we must not go beyond this christ was made sin for us second corinthians chapter five verse twenty one but he knew no sin and was holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners and without taint of corruption satan found nothing in him christ's human nature was liable to weakness but not to sin the words of the fifteenth article must never be forgotten christ was void from sin both in his flesh and in his spirit for want of a clear understanding of this union of two natures in christ's person the heresies which arose in the early church were many and great and yet arrowsmith points out that no less than four of these heresies are at once confuted by a right interpretation of the sentence now before us the arians hold that jesus christ was not true god this text calleth him the word and maketh him a person in the trinity the apollinarians acknowledge christ to be god yea and man too but they hold that he took only the body of a man not the soul of a man while his divinity supplied the room of a soul we interpret the word flesh for the whole human nature both soul and body the nestorians grant christ to be both god and man but then they say the godhead made one person and the manhood another person we interpret the words was made as implying a union in which christ assumed not the person of man but the nature of man 
the eutychians hold but one person in christ but then they confounded the natures they said the godhead and manhood made such a mixture as to produce a third thing here they are also confuted by the right understanding of the union between the word and flesh he then goes on to show how the ancient church met all these heretics with four adverbs which briefly and conveniently defined the union of the two natures in christ's person they said that the divine and human natures when the word was made flesh were united truly to oppose the arians perfectly to oppose the apollinarians undividedly to oppose the nestorians and unmixedly to oppose the eutychians those who wish to examine this subject further will do well to consult pearson on the creed dodds on the incarnation of the eternal word and hooker's ecclesiastical polity b five chapters fifty one fifty two fifty three and fifty four dwelt among us the greek word rendered dwelt meant literally tabernacled or dwelt in a tent the sentence does not mean that christ dwelt in his human body as in a tabernacle which he left when he ascended up into heaven christ says arrowsmith continueth now and shall for ever as true man as when he was born of the virgin mary he so took human nature as never to lay it down again the sentence only means that christ dwelt among men on earth for thirty-three years he was on earth so long conversing among men that there could be no doubt of the reality of his incarnation he did not appear for a few minutes like a phantom or ghost he did not come down for a brief visit of a few days but was living among us in his human body for the duration of a whole generation of men for thirty-three years he pitched his tent in palestine and was going to and fro among its inhabitants arrowsmith remarks that three sorts of men are described in the bible as living in tents shepherds sojourners and soldiers he thinks that the phrase here used has reference to the calling of all these three and that it points to christ's life on earth being that of a shepherd a traveller and a soldier but it may be doubted whether this is not a somewhat fanciful idea however pleasing and true the greek word rendered dwelt is only used in four other places in the new testament revelations chapter seven verse fifteen chapter twelve verse twelve chapter thirteen verse six and chapter twenty one verse three and in each of them is applied to a permanent and not a temporary dwelling we beheld his glory st john here declares that although the word was made flesh he and others beheld from time to time his glory and saw manifest proof that he was not man only but the only begotten son of god there is a difference of opinion among commentators as to the right application of these words some think that they apply to christ's ascension which john witnessed and to all his miraculous actions throughout his ministry in all of which as it is said of the miracle of cana he manifested forth his glory and his disciples saw it others think that they apply especially to our lord's transfiguration when he put on for a little season his glory in the presence of john james and peter i am on the whole inclined to think that this is the true view and the more so because of peter's words in speaking of the transfiguration second peter chapter one verses sixteen and eighteen and the words which immediately follow in the verse we are now considering the glory as of the only begotten of the father this sentence means such glory as became and was suitable to one who was the only begotten son of god the father these words were hardly applied to christ's miracles they seem to confine the glory which john says we beheld to the vision of glory which he and his two companions saw when christ was transfigured 
and they heard the father saying this is my beloved son lightfoot's paraphrase of this expression is worth reading though he does not apply the passage to the transfiguration we saw his glory as what was worthy as became the only begotten son of god he did not glisten in any worldly pomp or grandeur according to what the jewish nation fondly dreamed their messiah would do but he was dressed with the glory of holiness grace truth and the power of miracles we must carefully remember that the adverb as in this place does not imply comparison or similitude as if john only meant that the word's glory was like that of the only begotten son of christ chrysostom says the expression as in this place does not belong to similarity or comparison but to confirmation and unquestionable definition as though he said we beheld his glory such as it was becoming and likely that he should possess who is the only begotten and true son of god and king of all he also remarks that it is a common manner of speaking when people are describing the appearance of a king in state to say that he was like a king meaning only that he was a real king glasius in his philogia makes the same comment on the expression and quotes as parallel cases of the use of the adverb as second peter chapter one verse three first peter chapter one verse nineteen philemon verse nine romans chapter nine verse thirty two matthew chapter fourteen verse five second corinthians chapter three verse eighteen he thinks it a hebraism noting not the similitude but the reality and truth of a thing and quotes psalm one hundred and twenty two verse three and hosea chapter four verse four as old testament instances the only begotten of the father this remarkable expression describes our lord's eternal generation or sonship he is that person who alone has been begotten of the father from all eternity and from all eternity has been his beloved son this phrase is only used five times in the new testament and only in st john's writing that god always had a son appears in the old testament what is his son's name says agur proverbs chapter thirty verse four so also the father says to messiah thou art my son this day i have begotten thee psalm two verse seven but the sonship now before us we must carefully remember is not to be dated from any day it is the everlasting sonship of which john speaks the subject is one of those which we must be content to believe and reverence but must not attempt to define too narrowly we are taught distinctly in scripture that in the unity of the godhead there are three persons of one substance power and eternity the father the son and the holy ghost we are taught with equal distinctness that sonship describes the everlasting relation which exists between the first and second persons of the trinity and that christ is the only begotten and eternal son of god we are taught with equal distinctness that the father loveth the son and loveth him before the foundation of the world john chapter seventeen verse twenty four but here we must be content to pause our feeble faculties could not comprehend more if more were told us let us however remember carefully when we think of christ as the only begotten son of the father that we must not attach the least idea of inferiority to the idea of his sonship as the anathasian creed says the godhead of the father of the son and of the holy ghost is all one the glory equal the majesty coeternal such as the father is such is the son and yet the father is not the son and the son is not the father the argument of the ancient arians that if christ is the son of god he must necessarily be inferior in dignity to god and subsequent in existence to god 
is one that will not stand for a moment the reply is simple we are not talking of the relationship of mortal beings but of the relationship between the persons of the trinity who are eternal all analogies and illustrations drawn from human parents and children are necessarily defective as augustine said so we must say show me and explain to me an eternal father and i will show you and explain to you an eternal son we must believe and not try to explain christ's generation as god is eternal who shall declare it he was begotten from everlasting of the father he was always the beloved son and yet he is equal to the father as touching his godhead though inferior to him as touching his manhood full of grace and truth these words do not belong to the father though they follow his name so closely they belong to the word the meaning of them is differently explained some think that they describe our lord jesus christ's character during the time when he was on earth in general terms full of grace were his lips and full of grace was his life he was full of the grace of god the spirit dwelling in him without measure full of kindness love and favor to man full of truth in his deeds and words for in his lips was no guile full of truth in his preaching concerning god the father's love to sinners and the way of salvation for he was ever unfolding in rich abundance all truths that man can need to know for his soul's good some think that the words describe especially the spiritual riches that christ brought into the world when he became incarnate and set up his kingdom he came full of the gospel of grace in contradistinction to the burdensome requirements of the ceremonial law he came full of truth of real true solid comfort in contradistinction to the types and figures and shadows of the law of moses in short the full grace of god and the full truth about the way of acceptance were never clearly seen until the word became flesh dwelt among us on earth opened the treasure-house and revealed grace and truth in his own person i decidedly prefer the second of these two views the first is truth but not the truth of the passage the second appears to me to harmonize with the seventeenth verse which follows almost immediately and where the law and the gospel are contrasted and we are told that grace and truth came by jesus christ end of section three